In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. She's a most triumphant lady, if report be squared her. When she first met Mark Antony, she pursed up his heart upon the river of Kidness. There she appeared indeed, or my reporter devised well for her. I will tell you, the barge she sat in, like a burnished throne, burned on the water. The poop was beaten gold, purple the sails, and so perfumed that the winds were lovesick with them. The oars were silver, which to the tune of flutes kept stroke, and made the water which they beat to follow faster as amorous of their strokes. For her own person, it beggared all description. She did lie in her pavilion, cloth of gold of tissue, or picturing that Venus where we see the fancy outwork nature. Hello and welcome to The Plays The Thing. You've joined us for Antony and Cleopatra, and that was a description by Inobaris of Cleopatra, a famous line, or picturing that Venus where we see the fancy outwork nature. I am joined again by Sarah Jane Bentley, teacher at... Eaton in Great Britain. Sarah Jane, it's been too long. I'm really, really happy to have you back for Antony and Cleopatra. Hello, Tim, and the plays a thing. It's such a great pleasure to be back, and I've missed our conversations. And so here we are on the banks of the Nile with Cleopatra and Antony. What a place. Here, yes, to we are. <laughs> we are. I would love to ask you just about your overall impressions of this play. I have seen it performed one time. I just rewatched it and reread it. And I have somewhat strong opinions about this play. Do you have strong opinions about this play? Or is this kind of like something that you have to cover as part of your academic work? <laughs> I love this play, but I think it's a play for grown-ups. Oh, really? Rather than children. Yes. 
Okay, so I would love to hear more about that because my strong opinion about the play is that it really stars two children who are adults, but they're very, very much in the, we would say in the U.S., kind of like in the middle school mode. That's my impression of them. Um, I would love to hear why you think that this is a play primarily for grown-ups. Well, I suppose I see the relationship between Anthony and Cleopatra as quite a mature one, even though they're behaving in a sort of youthful way. I think it's quite difficult for young, young unmarried boys and girls to understand the complexity of that and why Antony forfeits reason for love. Okay. Okay. What do it's you think hard. of that? I I love it. <laughs> I love it because I have I am a little bit hung up on I think both Antony and Cleopatra their kind of stances toward the changing circumstances around them and what it kind of brings forth in each other's character. Let me let me back up though and do just a little bit of plot work for our audience just in case you haven't seen or read the play yet. This is almost like a sequel to Shakespeare's famous Julius Caesar. And Antony, starring role in Julius Caesar, um, has fallen in love with Cleopatra while he is in Egypt. Cleopatra, of course, queen of Egypt. Um, Mark Antony is co-ruling the Roman Empire with Octavius Caesar and with Lepidus. And he is in love with Cleopatra, but he... He is being called back to Rome by Caesar. And when he is called back to Rome, Caesar and he have been in a terrible dispute. And Caesar is advised by his friends, hey, listen, there's one way to have a kind of peaceful reunion with Antony. We've got a great idea for you. And that great idea is you should marry your sister to him. He will become family. You can't really rage against family if you know his if he's married to your sister. So, of course, all sorts of complications ensue when Cleopatra hears this news. So we can rejoin the later part of the plot now, uh, a little bit later. Um, but Sarah Jane, when I see Antony and Cleopatra. I, I'll, I'll let me just do my impression of Cleopatra. Maybe you th- can will say, Tim. I think you're being a little bit unfair, but this is how I see Cleopatra. Cleopatra says to one of her serving women, "Hey, is is Antony thinking of me?" No, ma'am, he's not thinking of you. He actually has a battle on his mind. Well, I need him to think about me. I need him to think about me right now. And the serving woman, I just talked to Antony and he is thinking about you all the time. Cleopatra, tell him to stop. Tell him to stop it immediately. I don't want him to think about me anymore. I want him to think about the battle because if he doesn't win the battle, then we can't be together. And and no matter what feedback Cleopatra gets from Mark Antony, she kind of wants him to do the opposite and i it feels like like a middle school romantic game that we all wanted to leave behind because it's so ridiculous um and so then i hear you say no this is actually like a really 
this is just kind of like a complicated adult love story. Is that, did I hear you right? Yes, I think that's my angle on it. Okay, I, w- I want to hear this because I, I think my reading is probably shallow. So I want to hear your your reading. Tell me about this kind of the complications of love in an adult relationship. Well, one of the things we're told about Cleopatra is custom cannot stale her infinite variety. So there's something mm. magical about her. So one way of reading her tricks and her capriciousness is this sort of childish, this petulance Mm. um, to keep, to keep Anthony sort of baited. But on the other hand, it's supposed to be, I think it's supposed to be more than that. It's supposed to transcend that and be more mesmerizing, unpredictable that she can't be fathomed. And it's something that men can't resist. And of course, Anthony's not the only man who's fallen for Cleopatra. Absolutely not. Right. Caesar too. Not Octavius Caesar, but Julius Caesar. Yeah. So she, she's a queen. She's an Mm -hmm. empress. She's a goddess. She believes that she is the God, the goddess Isis. And so I see that as something of her supernatural theatrical sort of nature, that it's more than Mm -hmm. childish playfulness, but it is also that. It is also that, and it's sort of grown-ups returning to that silly, as you say, teenage, heady phase of flirtation. Yeah. Now, I, I want to say, I really like hearing this because I will admit, I'm just going to admit this, in seeing the play again, I found myself really compelled by Cleopatra. Like I just got done kind of saying, oh, she acts so childish. Oh my goodness. Whatever Anthony, whatever mode Anthony is in, she's trying to get him into a different mode and it feels, I don't know, kind of controlling or manipulative or just immature. But I have to say that I also find her completely bewitching in a way. And so maybe Shakespeare, this is like a real triumph that I, you know, that as viewers, we're both kind of repelled by her capriciousness and yet also at the same time maybe entranced by it. Absolutely. Because she is. She's a great woman. She's, a, she's an incredible um, queen. She's an incredible lover. She, there is a reason that she has completely entranced these two mighty, mighty Roman generals and rulers. And we're also told that her beauty is not surpassing. Her beauty is not like the beauty of Helen, for example. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. it's not that men fall in love with her looks necessarily initially, but it's more this beguiling character. She's described as a witch and a gypsy, and there's something magical about her. And yeah, I saw a production at the Barbican in 2017. It was directed by Iqbal Khan and Cleopatra was um, Josette Simon. And she was brilliant because there's an an element of repulsion that you find her annoying, but she's also absolutely Mm -hmm. compelling. (laughs) It's it's a really, it must be a really difficult part to play. It sounds really difficult to play. 
the audio that we heard at the beginning um, from Inno Barbaros is a wonderful setup for we, we, it's it's a beautiful setup for what Mark Antony saw when he first saw her. So so the barge she sat in, like a burnished throne, burned on the water. The poop was beaten gold, purple the sails, and so perfumed that the wind were lovesick with them. The oars were silver, which to the tune of flutes kept stroke and made the water which they beat to follow faster. As the amorous of their strokes for her own person, it beggared all description. She did lie on in her pavilion, cloth of gold of tissue, or picturing that Venus where we see the fancy outwork nature. Could you explain that last line, Sarah Jane? I was following perfectly until um, in her pavilion, gold of cloth and tissue, or picturing that Venus where we see the fancy outwork nature. Can you make sense of that for me, the fancy outwork nature? So that Venus that's referred to in these lines is a particular Venus in a painting by an artist. So Anabarbus is saying that the pageant that Cleopatra has created on the river, the River Sidness, is far surpassing what the artist imagined when he painted that scene. So you know how in carnivals and things you'll sometimes get a float where they recreate a classical painting? Yeah. That's what Cleopatra has done, and she's made herself the central figure of Venus. And she has outdone this master painter. (laughs) It's such a beautiful picture because the pomp and grandeur surrounding her, I mean, Shakespeare with his full powers kind of takes us to this scene and sees it. And we're not the only ones that are impressed with these lines. This line, some of these lines show up in a famous, a famous poem, don't they? A really famous poem, maybe the poem of the 20th century. I think this image has captured the imagination of poets through the ages. So it it obviously captured Shakespeare's. He's taken it from Plutarch's Lives of the Noble Grecians Mm. and Romans. And then, yes, we were just discussing before the show how T.S. Eliot also uses this image in The Wasteland, where we, we have a woman sitting at her dressing table putting on her makeup for the evening. And I, I want to just read a few of those you read, lines. Read from, it. Yes. Uh, a, yeah, a game of chess from the second part of T.S. Eliot's Wasteland. The chair she sat in, like a burnished throne, glowed on the marble, where the glass held up by standards wrought with, flute, with fruited vines, from which a golden cupidon peeped out. Another hid his eyes behind his wing, doubled the flames of seven-branched candelabra, reflecting the light upon the table as the glittering of her jewels rose to meet it. It's beautiful. It's very inspiring. It is, and And the imagery of this play, Antony and Cleopatra, I think it does have a cosmic beauty to it. So it's written in 1606, Mm. which is about the same time as Macbeth, the play Macbeth. And you can almost see um, a sort of mirror 
in the two plays in that this play is full of light and sparkling, shimmering imagery of gold and silver, whereas Macbeth is full of darkness that the stars blot out their fires. But here we have an earth that reflects back the glory of the blazing heavens. Mm. Oh, that's a great observation. I love that. That's such a great observation. Um, so we're we're officially with Shakespeare's writing, we're in the 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 great tragedies. Macbeth, Hamlet, Othello, and um Antony and Cleopatra are all written around this time. Do do you think that we should see this as a tragedy? Is that what this play is? Absolutely. It's it's a retelling of history as well, because it's yeah. about the Pax Romana, really. But it it's so focused on the relationship of Antony and Cleopatra and its tragic ending that I think it has to be read as one of Shakespeare's really innovative tragedies, um, particularly mm. in the, the way that it's structured. I mean, the death of our main character, Antony, is a bodged suicide in Act 4. And then yeah. we have a second climactic tragic death in Act 5, which is highly meta-theatrical and done by Cleopatra. Basically, what I mean by that is she is staging her own death within the play, like a director. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that little bit of that Hamlet play within a play scenario, but she's enacting her own death as kind of a stage play within the play. Yes, she it, she's even, got a gift for it. She has a real gift for it. Exactly. She even sort of orders the props in beforehand and then hoists <laughs> Anthony <laughs> yeah, up. She's amazing. On a rope. <laughs> she's amazing. Um let me do a little bit more plot work and then I want to ask you your impressions of Anthony. And I'm curious whether or not you see the Anthony of this play being of the same cloth as the Anthony in Julius Caesar. But let's get to that in a second. So Antony takes up Caesar on his offer. He marries Octavia, Caesar's um, sister. I hope I didn't misspeak. I meant he marries Caesar Augustus's sister, Octavia. So now Caesar has kind of tied a bond between he and Antony, and he uses the opportunity to imprison Lepidus, who was his friend and colleague in this kind of second triumvirate of um, Roman rulers who come up after the death, the assassination of Julius Caesar. So there's kind of three people who are all cooperating to uh, take control of Rome after Caesar's death. One of them is this new Caesar, Caesar, who will be Caesar Augustus. Um, he, Antony, and Lepidus are all in league together, but Caesar imprisons Lepidus, and then he turns on Antony. So Octavia tries to reconcile them, but when she tries to reconcile them, she soon discovers that Antony has returned to Egypt and he has returned to Cleopatra. So now, Antony and Caesar, there's nothing left to do but to fight. So they kind of square up for battle. Antony wants to challenge Caesar at sea, 
And he wants Cleopatra to use her own ships to also attack Caesar. So that's exactly what happens. There's a big naval fight, but Cleopatra is forced to flee with her navy. Antony follows. He abandons his men. And so Caesar now has the upper man, upper hand. Caesar then sends out Phidias to try to win Cleopatra away from Antony. And Cleopatra gives in a little bit, or she's open to Caesar's wiles. Meanwhile, second battle at sea, Antony attacks again. He fails again. He blames Cleopatra, and he actually considers killing her. He relents of that. But then hears that she has died by suicide. Um, He, in turn, is like, you know what? Romeo and Juliet had a good idea. I'm going to commit suicide also. He attempts. He botches it, as Sarah Jane said a little while ago. But then Caesar arrives. He informs Cleopatra that he will take her back to Rome. Antony um, does, in fact, die. And Cleopatra, facing the possibility of being humiliated in Rome, is forced to ask herself, would I rather die or would I rather go back to Rome as Caesar's trophy? I'd rather die. So she does stage her own death with a poisonous asp. And Caesar and his men enter. They find her body. And that's the conclusion of the play. So um, it is kind of a Romeo and Juliet style ending. I want to come back to Antony, though. Um, two questions for you, Sarah Jane. Just what do you think of Antony? And my second question is, do you see this character as the same character that we saw in Julius Caesar? So first, just general impressions of Antony. He is hopelessly in love with Cleopatra. He is, I think, torn between Roman Egypt, and that that is a that's a sort of symbolic um, tension as well as a literal one. It's it's about those two locations, but it's also about, in a way, Rome could be seen to represent logic, masculinity, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. restraint, and Egypt represents femininity, excess, feasting, imperialism. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and, and Antony is is kind of torn between the two and is having something of an identity crisis. Um, I think if we can, we should try and take the same view of him as Cleopatra has. So when she discovers that he's dead, she she says that the world is a vile place. Um that mm. the world is dull, that there's nothing left, that that Antony was sort of like a whole universe on his own. Um, so for all the, the brilliance and depth of Cleopatra, I think Antony matches that. And his men love him. His, his soldiers absolutely love him. He's, he's a very generous uh, leader. Um, one of his deepest most profound conversations is with the character of love eros so he's closely in communion mm-hmm. with love which is clearly a great thing and um although he, he shakespeare paints him with his faults 
I find him quite lovable too. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I I find in Julius Caesar to go back to that play for a second. He seems to me like he's deliberately juxtaposed with Brutus. And Brutus the stoic is very much of the kind of logical mode. He fully embraces that kind of internal logos, that divine ordering and structuring of the universe. Even so, when Portia, Brutus's wife, dies, Cassius comes to him and, you know, Brutus announces, my wife has died. And Cassius says, you should make use of your philosophy. You know, you're a Stoic, make use of your philosophy. And Brutus does. And he says, of Portia, let's no longer speak. And they go back to battle planning. And that's the end of it. He's lost his wife and there's hard, he just kind of like rationally attempts to put it behind him. Antony, on the other hand, seems to be, he's a little bit wild. He's a little bit untamed. And you're right. There are moments that he, I mean, his great speech in Julius Caesar, he is very rhetorically powerful and logical, but he's, he's a man that seems really driven by his, by his heart or his gut. And he seems to be kind of attempting sometimes to tame himself and not succeeding. And I, I love him for that. And I have to say like, um, I identify with him a little bit. I, I, I am, you know, I love academia and I love spending time in, um, you know, rigorous dialogue, but I also find myself kind of like Mark Antony, kind of like sometimes thrown by the waves of emotion. It's who I am. So I love that about him. And it sounds like you, you're partial to it as well. I think he's meant to be the archetypal Renaissance man who really has all these duties of state, but then also has all these personal yearnings. And, you know, he's a lover, he's a poet, but he's also a warrior and a statesman. Yeah. And he is yeah. a moiety of the world. He's half, he owns half the world at one point in the play, and then he loses it all. It's amazing. And he recognizes, doesn't he, that he, he looks back at some point when he's kind of lost his second battle with Caesar and he's like, man, I used to rule half the world and now it's all gone. There's some lines that I really loved in which Antony compares himself to the clouds. And it struck me as it's really playing that note of Antony's kind of passionate, um, stormy internal state sometimes. The lines, sometimes we see a cloud that's dragonish, a vapor, sometimes like a bear or lion, a towered citadel, a pendant rock, a forked mountain or blue promontory, that which is now a horse, even with a thought, the rack dislimbs and makes it indistinct as water is in water. I love those lines. And, and they do really say sorry you you finish your point they do really well i just they they strike me as um that anthony sometimes that's right but you and yeah i think they those lines those images point us to the elemental symbolism of the play where 
Cleopatra says that she is fire and air. And mm. Antony, I think, is meant to be land and Caesar is sea. Now, we as moderns have lost something of the understanding of the significance of that, which is that all of Renaissance medicine was tied into Galen's four humours and the four elements of the cosmos, which they thought was uh, geocentric, being captured in microcosm in the body of a human being. So the belief was that everybody had these four elements in them that had to be balanced out. And Cleopatra being fiery is full of passion. And um, Antony, I suppose, is more melancholy and Caesar is more calculating. And these these are all sort of yeah. um, beliefs about the human personality. It governed the way that they did medicine. So, for example, if someone was ill, they would bleed them to get the liquids mm. out of the body to try and restore a balance between the four humours. So I think Shakespeare's playing around with elemental imagery to do with personality types in the play. So as you were saying earlier, it's not insignificant that Caesar wants to fight by sea, Antony wants to fight by land, and Cleopatra oh, wants didn't to fight by air. That, that they want to exist in their elements. And yeah. what, oh. what happens to Antony is he transcends his and, and becomes like the air with Cleopatra in the end. And Caesar, I find a most fascinating character. He's unlike Antony, you know, he would never look at the clouds and dream about what he might see there, mm -hmm. what it might reflect about himself. Yeah. Caesar is almost humorously single-minded. And Shakespeare, I think, presents him as slightly, it's not naivety, but it's it's just um he lacks subtlety, doesn't he? And Cleopatra and Antony mock him and refer to him as that boy Caesar. Or he just marches in straight lines. That's what Caesar does. Right. <laughs> and in the end, he wins. Wait, wait. Right. I was going to say, I mean, this is part of the reason why he ends up being like the great administrator of the Roman state. Exactly. Is because he marches in straight lines. It's absolutely right. But he, I think it's so interesting that Shakespeare wrote a play about Julius Caesar, a play about Antony, a play about Cleopatra, but he didn't write one about Caesar Augustus. And I wonder if there's just not enough there to make a really compelling character. As a side character who brings order to the Roman state, sure, great, mm. he can do that. Um, but I do think there's a little bit lacking for the reasons that you described. He marches in straight lines. There's not enough there to make a real winsome central character. That's right. And yet he wins the day. He does. So, Tim, what do you think of the idea that in this play, Shakespeare has some kind of prophetic vision of the way that culture is going to go? Now, I could be completely fanciful here. I might be totally wrong. But I wonder, does... Caesar in some way represent the coming of the enlightenment man, mm. the man of reason and fact. And Antony, who gives his life for love, is essentially wiped out. He's a thing of the past. And the new age is the new kind of hard age of reason. Is Shakespeare right. 
prophesying that coming in. Prescient enough to recognize that. Well, let's tease this out because I think of Hamlet a lot of ways is kind of a bit of a foretelling of that far and undiscovered country. How do I say this? I would not be surprised at all if Shakespeare saw something coming down the line um, that was going to be very much distinct from the Renaissance world and the medieval world that he was more familiar with. I think we see little hints of that in Hamlet. And if this play was written around the same time, I don't think it's too much to speculate that he... Shakespeare um, had a kind of speculative vision of maybe what the Enlightenment was going to bring. So if you're not familiar with these terms, the Enlightenment, the Enlightenment is kind of this time after the Renaissance and after the Reformation where um, the great advances in science cause thinkers to kind of align all of their thought under the canopy of the natural sciences. So a really, really strong emphasis on rationality, on um, seeking data, and there's kind of a move to get rid of some of the, I don't know, we even call them today the softer sciences. Not to get rid of them, but to kind of treat them as um, lesser cousins to the great uncle that is reason. It would not surprise me at all, Sarah Jane, um, if Shakespeare did have kind of a vision that this was the direction that we were that we were headed. You Possibly. think we're speculating too far? I don't know. It may be just pure speculation. Hamlet is about seven years before this, isn't it? Hamlet's around 1599. But perhaps Shakespeare could see something of the dawning of the age of scientific reason as um, standing in opposition to things that are magical, supernatural, um, even theological, I suppose. But that's uh, maybe us reading a little bit later. (laughs) Reading things backwards. Yeah. Um, But it's it's interesting because Cleopatra says things like when she sees that. Antony's dead. She says, the crown of the earth doth melt. Young boys and girls are level now with men. The odds is gone and there is nothing left remarkable beneath the visiting moon. Mm. So if that is about the death of a philosophical age, a way of seeing the world, then I think it stands. But we could be reading things backwards because we know what happened next. (laughs) Right, right. Well, we might be, but I, I do want to say a little bit in our defense, the romantic kind of counter revolt to the Enlightenment loved Shakespeare. Shakespeare is their arch saint in so many ways because this is the man that believes in poetry, that's not afraid to dabble with the darker parts of the psyche, and um, who could capture characters. And maybe even glorify characters like Antony and Cleopatra for having passions, for having um, a deep sense that there's something else going on in the world 
other than the kind of uh, geometric propositionalism of Caesar Augustus. That's right. That's right. And I think there's something really nostalgic about the relationship of Antony and Cleopatra, as if Shakespeare's saying, we're never going to see a love like this again. Yeah. And I wonder also if that nostalgia is perhaps to do with the shifting cosmology um, that the idea that the world, that the cosmos was geocentric has been challenged. They're moving from the idea of um, fixed, of, of wandering planets to fixed planets, that, that the sun is the center of the universe. So another thing Cleopatra says about Antony's death is, his face was as the heavens, and therein stuck a sun and moon, which kept their course and lighted the little earth, the little O, oh, the earth. So there she mm. is describing a geocentric universe with a sun yeah. rotating the earth. And I wonder if the death of Antony is something like the death of that kind of a cosmos. Of that vision, yeah. Yes, and that now um, things have changed. Um, are you f- familiar with, I'm thinking about the end of Merchant of Venice. So after the courtroom scene in which Shylock is sentenced, um, the kind of two pairs of lovers retreat and one of them, and forgive me, I can't remember his name. Maybe you remember is out in the garden with his girlfriend and, they're listening to music and they're gazing up at the stars and he has these beautiful, beautiful lines about the kind of organization of the heavens and the music that comes from the spheres singing to each other. And there's some of the most beautiful lines in all of Shakespeare. And it makes me sad when I read them because they're so alien to our sensibilities now like the idea that the spheres would sing to each other in harmony that sounds just like madness but this was something that i mean up until the around the time of shakespeare this was a deeply held belief that god's governing hand and in god's passion of love toward his creation was such that the stars and the moons and the planets responded to that love in a joyful harmonious singing and i there's a wonderful line or you know a couple of pages maybe in c.s lewis's the discarded image do you know that that book i'm sure you do sarah jane where he kind of talks about this this change us leaving the medieval cosmology and c.s lewis is plainly just sad about it he has he understands the vision more deeply than than certainly i understand it he understands what we've left and there's a real forlorn sadness about what we've lost that when we look into the heavens we just see pinpricks of light we don't see this divine dance of the constellations and so in talking about it it makes me sad i mean like i'm in so many ways i'm a totally modern man um but I do recognize the more I read history, especially medieval, especially medieval history, that we live in a different sort of cosmos now. This is, I think this is crucial 
to the play, um, just to touch on the Merchant of Venice, that's right. At the end of the play, when the marriages are made and yes. um, they go off to sort of Portia's heavenly realm, it just, it's Jessica yes. and Lorenzo are the lovers. That's right. That's who it is. Jessica they, and Lorenzo. Thank you. Their, their senses have been awakened and they can hear the music of the spheres. And it's really pertinent that you bring it up because I think Antony and Cleopatra presents us with a world that is, in, although there's wars going on, essentially the love of Antony and Cleopatra presents a world in harmony. And there's a moment yeah. in Antony and Cleopatra where we also hear this divine music. It's in Act 14.3. So um, I'll just see if I can find it. But if you remember, there are soldiers in the street and everyone stops in their tracks because they can hear this music, peace, what noise, list, mm. list, hark, music in the air, under the earth. And so in the theatre at that point, there must be some music bursting forth that's kind of coming from the spheres. And yeah. it's, it's outside Cleopatra's palace. And, and it, halts, it halts the soldiers as they're going about their duty. Yes, exactly. As you look for that can i just break in with a little personal moment here we were talking before we started um that my daughter is having a hard time sleeping she's waking up every two hours and to give my wife a break i take the first wake up duty which is usually around 10 or 10 30 my daughter seven months old I will pick her up out of her crib and I'll sit down on this little recliner and I'll rock her and I'll talk to her and she will be so upset. She'll be crying and she will be raging. And then I'll sing to her and Sarah Jane, I don't even know how to describe what it does to her. But as soon as I start singing, she calms down and she looks at me and she usually will put her head against my chest and I'll just sing to her. And it will soothe her. And sometimes if I stop singing to her, she'll be like, Papa, what are you doing? I thought we had a deal here. And she'll start crying again. And so I end up singing for like 30 or 45 minutes. And it, it is so, I don't even know how to describe it, what music, even my, you know, rough melody making voice, what it does to her. It's, it's magical. It's incredible. The music of the spheres. You must have a yeah. a good repertoire to keep um, going. For you know they are. They're all minutes. hymns. That's wonderful. They're all hymns. <laughs> They're all I hymns. Do. I just pick my my favorite hymns, and I kind of butcher some of the words. But she doesn't. She doesn't know the difference yet. So I get away with it. One of the great demands of having a baby that no one tells you about is the need to know lots of songs by heart. Because you've had this experience too then. Yes. And suddenly you're racking your brain thinking, what other songs do I know that I can sing? Yeah. yeah. But it's, it is a wonderful um, sort of re-engagement with the music, maybe of your childhood, the things that your parents yeah. sang to you. Yes. I think that's, that's true. The power of music. We can really underestimate it when we're reading the play silently to ourselves at our desks, that when we see it in the yes. theatre, there's this wonderful moment in Act 4 where the music comes from under the stage and the soldiers are wondering mm. what it is. And then the very next scene, we're with Antony and Cleopatra and the character of Eros in their bedroom in the in the palace, in Cleopatra's palace. And so it's as if they're 
the harmony of their love is emanating outwards into the streets. And wow. disrupt, you disrupting know, the soldiers. I will admit I did not even see that. I mean, I, I obviously saw it, but it did not register to me. You're really bringing that to life for me. It, it, it does make me think about the ancient Greek philosopher Pythagoras. Do you know the kind of anecdote about his understanding of like that the whole world was organized according to harmonies? Do you know this story? He's, I think a little bit. So you're going to have to explain it to me, but I remember reading Beauty for Truth's Sake, and I think it is yes, addressed yes, in that Yes, it book. shows up, I think, in that book. Mm. He's walking past a blacksmith's shop, is Pythagoras, and the blacksmith is using his hammer on an anvil, a big block anvil. And apparently, Pythagoras ducks his head into the shop. And as the big anvil is ringing, there's another anvil on the other side of the shop. And without being touched, it also starts ringing. And so Pythagoras puts together, there's something going on here, almost like a chord progression between this bigger anvil and the smaller anvil. And from this, he develops this like strong cosmological view that all of the world and all of the cosmos is organized into these harmonies. And if we just have the kind of patience to listen for it, we can, we can decipher it. And it's a, it's a really beautiful notion. Again, unfortunately, one that we have lost. We don't really have eyes for it or ears for it much anymore. That's right. But one thing we do have in the modern era is this amazing access to music in all forms, just at the click or swipe of a screen. Whereas, I suppose previously, if you wanted to hear a symphony, you'd have to actually go and hear one performed by an entire orchestra. Right. Right. Um, So we have gained other things, I suppose, in terms of how we can listen to music, but Yes, perhaps we are a bit deaf and that will that will be restored one day. Perhaps we'll be able to hear that again. <laughs> Wouldn't that be lovely? Um so another thing that play, yeah. sorry, another thing that no, fascinates no. me about this play is we were talking a little bit about the structure of tragedy earlier. And you know, if you think about Shakespeare's early plays, they're a lot more static, they're a lot more in harmony with the Aristotelian conventions of the unity of time, place, and action. Mm-hmm. But this play has the shorter scenes, um, the action chops back and forth between Egypt and Rome and um, lots of other locations as well, various battlefields. So there are 23 times in the first three acts where the play switches geographies and 15 times wow. in the fourth the location shifts from Rome to Egypt and back again. So that so Shakespeare's got really bold here, where he that there's obviously yeah. some sort of stagecraft that can be done at this point in 1606 that the earlier Renaissance stage wasn't capable of. Or Shakespeare has somehow prepared his audience that they can now suspend their disbelief and enter into a stage world that can shift locations rapidly. And I just wonder how they did it. Mm-hmm. How did they shift so quickly between Rome? And Egypt on the stage, were they? I wonder. Rolling I wonder. things on and off, or what was the stagecraft that they used? It must have been magnificent. It must have been. We just did Richard the Third, 
And there's a scene before the big battle scene that concludes Richard III in which Richard and his arch enemy, you probably can remember his name. I don't know why I'm so bad with names today, are being visited by, in dreams, by these ghosts of those that Richard has killed. So Queen Anne, I mean, everybody that Richard III put under the knife, they visit Richard and then his enemy in immediate succession. And we were reasoning on the podcast that surely these two encampments were side by side, side by side on stage and the ghost would just travel across the stage in these dreams. So, I mean, is it possible? We don't know, obviously, that Rome and Egypt are placed side by side on the stage in some way that just one, you know, one part of the stage is kind of allotted. Okay, now we're next to the Nile and now we're in the marble bastions of Rome. Hmm. Possibly. It does seem like a more complete scene change, but possibly. um, And Antony is the the sort of unifying factor who's moving back and forth. Going back and forth, right. I remember right. when I saw this done at the Barbican, they made a wonderful use of the mentions of squares in the play. And that huh. Rome had sort of square shapes and and Egypt had round shapes. And that I just thought it was really a really clever touch to, to yeah. kind of capture something of the the mentality or the atmosphere of each place. Yeah, thematically for sure. In a, I'm making a lot of like callbacks to other plays, but I'm thinking about breaking up the timeline. The Winter's Tale, which is going to come along a few years after this play, has, I believe, a 14-year break between the early part of the play and the latter part of the play. And those two locales are similarly dissimilar between Rome and Egypt. So we begin in Sicily and it's kind of like the square shapes of Rome's. It's law, it's order. Sure, Leontes is going crazy and, you know, threatening to kill his wife. Um, but it's still, it's like very rule bound. And then we go to Bohemia and it's all dancing and melody and color. So yeah, it does seem like there's something kind of similar happening here, juxtaposing Rome and Egypt. I think so. And also just Shakespeare's confidence as he, through his career, starts to do new things in the theatre. And I think one of the things that adds to the tragic climax of this play is the way that Cleopatra's world shrinks and she becomes Mm. confined in the monument and Rome is outside and it's as if Rome has conquered all the world outside and this amazing grandeur of the romance of Antony and Cleopatra is has been diminished just to within the monument where they're trapped. So does that make sense to you? That being said, does Cleopatra's decision at the end to take her own life, does it kind of make sense to you? Is it kind of an, on, an honorable deed in a way? So I think one of the things that the play explores is this idea of um the dignity of taking control of your own death which i suppose is a roman idea mm. so antony at one point right. says he's um there's something noble that he's a roman vanquished by roman 
And Cleopatra says she's rather, she'd rather die in a ditch in Egypt than be paraded through the streets of Rome right. and have some squeaking Cleopatra boy her greatness to the right. masses. <laughs> and 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 so that I think there is something slightly hypocritical in her death in that she she dies like a Roman. She dies like an she anti-Roman. Does. She takes she her own really life. She really does. Rather than allowing Caesar to have the victory and parade her through the streets. Yeah, it, there is kind of an inversion there, mm. isn't it? <laughs> um, but it's but it is also a highly unusual and supernatural death, where we're told that she studied various forms of painless dying throughout her life in mm. case she ever needed to do this, and she's discovered that the poison of a viper is is the way to do it. And of course, throughout the play, there's this culminating imagery of her being compared to the serpent of the Nile, the crocodile, and then in the end, the snake. Yes. I read a little anecdote about the actress who played Cleopatra in the, I think it was like the 1985 BBC version. The BBC did all of the Shakespeare plays. And the woman who played Cleopatra apparently was deathly afraid of snakes oh. <laughs> but she had to do this scene and this in the scene the snake they played it with a real snake and at some point it slithered down her back and like yeah <laughs> and she had to go on and do the scene afterwards um i think actors Sergina, are I, so full of courage that we have no idea oh goodness they have to do yeah um I want to interject for one second, Sarah Jane, and remind everybody that this podcast is platformed by the Searcy Institute. If I'm not mistaken, Sarah Jane, you will be attending the Searcy National Conference next year. Is that correct? This is the hopeful plan. I'm so excited (laughs) that I'm maybe going to actually meet you in person. uh, I know. One of these days. How long have we been appearing on this podcast together? Has it been six years? It may even be that like long. That? Uh, yeah, it must be. And we've both had children and everything. So I'm right. so... And you will have another by the time, hopefully, that you attend the Seriously National Conference. You will have another. You're, you're very late term, aren't you? I'm two days officially oh my past goodness. my due date. Um, so... Yeah, the the Kern family have very kindly invited me to come and join you at the conference. And the plan is that I will be there. But obviously, I need to name this boy, get him a passport, (laughs) and then book some flights. (laughs) So there are various stages to the journey that have to be overcome. But yes, I'm really hopeful that we will will all be there, myself, my husband, and my two children in, in July. In July, in person. Well, mm-hmm. I remain very hopeful. Last time, I think we were interrupted by COVID. Yes. And then time before that, we were interrupted by Elizabeth, your daughter. So I'm hopeful it's going to happen. Let me say one thing about um, Circe. So a lot of people are like, okay, sure, Circe's involved. Or like they're, they're at the vanguard of the classical Christian renewal um, in the U.S., is there some way for me to be involved? Seriously has a great apprenticeship program. And so if you are interested in any way in getting involved in the apprenticeship program, it happens in a way that is very conducive to people who have full-time jobs and full-time families. So 
if you're thinking, oh, I would love to do it, I just don't have the time, you might be surprised. So all classes are led by CRC apprenticeship trained, experienced, and dedicated classical educators. They use the classical approach to instruction. There's weekly assessment that focuses on mastery. Um, they never grade with machines, which is probably something that's that's appealing to everybody, I think. Um, and if you would like to know more about how to cultivate wisdom and virtue in yourself and in your children, visit circeinstitute.org today. That's C-I-R-C-E institute.org. Plenty of information about the apprenticeship program, and I highly, highly recommend it. Knowing many of the apprentices and the teachers that are involved in that program, I, I couldn't recommend it more highly. Sarah Jane, um, we are coming to the close of Antony and Cleopatra. I wonder if you have, where do you put this play in the pantheon of your favorites? You really like this play, and I, and I really like this play also. Where do you think, place it? Do you place it really highly? Gosh, I never, I should have thought about this. One of the things I must do is rank the Shakespeare plays. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think it has one of the most terrific endings, the most tragically satisfying mm. endings. Um, you know, I think the snake is is powerfully symbolic of the fact that Cleopatra sees herself as Isis the god, mm. the goddess who is associated with snakes. And that is something that is, is really, uh, it's almost like self-perpetuating when she puts the snake to her breast and says, yeah. look at me nursing this child. Yeah. Uh, it's almost like some kind of weird Egyptian cycle of life or something. And it's, uh -huh. I also see it as a parallel to Lady Macbeth. I was just thinking the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Who who also says that she's she has given suck and know how knows how tender it is to nurse the babe. Yeah. That milks her. And um so I think the ending is is really powerfully climactic. It is so theatrical. It is so theatrical on stage. It's super staged. Mm. Um so I don't think I could come up with a Shakespeare play that has a better, more climactic, satisfying, yeah. tragic ending than this one. Yeah. It builds up from word. act four. And uh -huh. Anthony's still uh -huh. alive when he comes. He's kind of dragged into the monument. And then Cleopatra brings out the snakes. It's, um, it's a magnificent ending. Yeah. Um, no, it really is. Really my favorite is. play, though, is probably Coriolanus. That's probably my favorite. Is play. it really? Yeah, we did that. I I saw that we. I think it's been five years since you and I did Coriolanus. It's been that long, and it it is yes, absolutely a favorite for both of us. Um, I am thinking so, Sarah Jane. I am coming to the close of the plays. The thing we only have about four plays left, and I have been thinking about ranking like i'll have gone through all the plays and i'm thinking about like okay i'm just going to force myself to kind of like rank them from top to bottom according to my preference and i might pester you to come on that show that i recognize you'll, you'll have a newborn um and a three-year-old so that might be a tall order but 
but I'm going to try anyway, and maybe I'll get lucky and you'll come back on the show. It's something I think everyone, or at least English teachers, have to do in their lives. You've got to rank your Is that right? I'm sure of it. I'm astonished I've never taken this on before. You've made me think about it now. This might be a good excuse to take it on. (laughs) Hey, I want to thank you um, for coming on the show again. I want to say best hopes for the birth of your next child, all high hopes, and we're real excited for you. And I want to close this with a little bit of audio. This is from Cleopatra uh, preparing for the end of her life. (laughs) He words me, girls. He words me that I should not be noble to myself. Finish, good lady. The bright day is done, and we are for the dark. Go put it to the haste. Madam, I will. Madam, Caesar through Syria intends his journey, and within three days, you, with your children, will he send before. Make your best use of this. Dolabella, I shall remain your debtor. Adieu, good madam. Now, Iris, what thinks thou? Thou, an Egyptian puppet, shall be shown in Rome as well as I. Mechanic slaves with greasy aprons, rules and hammers shall uplift us to the view. The gods forbid. It is most certain, Iris. Saucy lictors will catch at us like strumpets. And scald rhymers ballad us out of tune. The quick comedians extemporally will stage us and present our... Alexandrian revels. Antony shall be brought drunken forth, and I shall see some squeaking Cleopatra boy my greatness in the posture of a whore. Oh, the good God. Now, Charmian, show me my women like a queen. 